I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. According to data from the Copernicus Climate Change Service, the EU's flagship Earth Observation Program, on November 17th, the global average temperature was temporarily 2 degrees Celsius warmer than the average global temperature pre-industrialization, an event with ominous climate implications. Scientists have warned for decades that a global average increase of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius represents a crucial and concerning tipping point in the fight against climate change. As listeners will know, one contributing factor to global climate change is the increasing level of carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, in our atmosphere. Scientists, industry leaders, and our last guest on What It Takes, Peter Reinhardt of Charm Industrial, all agree that the time has come to switch from simply offsetting carbon dioxide emissions with decarbonization efforts to actually removing excess carbon. There are two main natural processes that remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One is photosynthesis, where plants turn CO2 into oxygen and glucose. The other is ocean absorption, where carbon is absorbed by the ocean and becomes carbonic acid, which breaks down further into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate ions. Carbon is also absorbed by coral and marine plants. According to research from the United Nations, the ocean absorbs 25% of our carbon dioxide emissions. In order to remove enough carbon from the atmosphere to slow global climate change, we need to find ways to supercharge natural processes like ocean absorption and to do it in a way that's good for the ocean. And that is exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Ben Tarbell, founder and CEO of Ebb Carbon, is doing. So the the scientific consensus is clear. Um, Climate change will not be solved by decarbonization alone, but we also now need to remove billions of tons of CO2 that's already in the air, and we need to do it quickly. There's already too much CO2 in the air. Um, We're seeing the effects of that, and unfortunately, we're still putting more CO2 in the air, and so we need to get ahead of that. We need to we need to remove massive amounts of CO2 if we're going to stay below one and a half degrees C. Which, after temporarily surpassing that two degrees Celsius mark in November, is a goal that has become more important than ever. And the team at Ebb Carbon is approaching carbon removal in a way that is both novel and as ancient as the ocean itself. Ben and the team at Ebb Carbon have developed a system using electrochemistry to remove carbonic acid from ocean water, deacidifying the water and sending it back into the ocean where it can then absorb more carbon. We do it by essentially um, removing acid from the ocean, which when we do, it creates conditions in the ocean that naturally pull CO2 out of the air and convert it to another form of carbon that is stored permanently in the ocean safely. Ebb Carbon has ambitions to remove massive amounts of carbon in a way that's permanent, additional, verifiable, and scalable. There are very few solutions that can scale to that to that um, size, but, but also um, the attributes of these approaches that matter are things like permanence and additionality, and so the quality of those removals matters if we're going to get ahead of the problem. And so you know, being able to harness natural processes in the ocean using the scale of the ocean, but also the, the geologic timescales of the ocean enable us to, 
deliver, deliver at that scale, but deliver in a way that enables the high quality that we need. So in order to remove carbon from the atmosphere to slow climate change, Ben and the team at Ebb Carbon are harnessing and healing the ocean. And it starts with using electrochemistry to kickstart one of nature's best and biggest carbon removal systems. I spoke to Ben about his journey from his childhood spent obsessed with building and engineering to his career in solar, to finding his way to marine carbon removal, to prototyping Ebb's system in a bathroomless empty warehouse, to opening Ebb's first site and starting to meaningfully remove carbon via the ocean. Ben, we first met a decade ago when you were at Mosaic and I had just started Powerhouse and it took me a while to get to know you because you are quiet and you're on the introverted end of the spectrum. Uh, But over time, I was able to get to know you better. And the more I got to know you, the more I was just constantly impressed with uh, your work, but also just who you are as a person. Uh, you're probably one of, if not the most understated people that I know. And unlike many founders and CEOs, you don't like being in the spotlight, which makes me all the more grateful that you are here doing this. Well, I'm excited to be here because you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the excitement. <laughs> Um, I would like our listeners to know what you said when I did invite you to be on the show. We were at an event. We were hanging out. It was really fun. I was like, Ben, this is great. You just closed the Series A. I'd love to have you on the show. Do you remember what you said? Um, I I think I said something to the effect of, I will do it because my PR team probably will make me do it. (laughs) So here I am. (laughs) That is what I remember as well. Ben, you grew up exploring the forest streams and cornfields of rural Delaware. What was it like growing up in Delaware? And what were you like as a kid? What were you into? So I, I had a lot of freedom as a kid. I was I was the third child of two working parents growing up in the 80s. And it was a very different time then. Kids were left alone. Um, we had a lot of time without uh, supervision. Um, and so I, you know, as you said, I had uh, a vast, you know, forest right behind my house and um i had a a huffy bmx bike and so i had a you know a three mile radius <laughs> where i could wander with my friends and i spent a lot of it climbing trees and i spent a lot of it um kind of trudging through the the streams and marshes in the you know in, in the neighbor's yards but um you know i had a fish tank full of things i found you know whether it was crayfish and frogs or, um, you know, salamanders, you know, just turtles, everything, everything you could imagine in, uh, in an East Coast forest. But, you know, when I was a kid, uh, we, we started an addition on our house, which we never finished before, before we, we moved out of the house. <laughs> but, you know, spent a lot of time um, building stuff. And, you know, we had tools in the, in the basement and we had lots of scrap wood and lots of materials to, to make things out of. And so I, you know, in, in quotes invented a lot of things, but, but also, you know, eventually <laughs> learned how to make things that were useful. And, you know, we had fun making go-karts and zip lines and, you know, skate, skateboarding was popular in the eighties. I, I never figured out how to do an ollie, but I, I made a, a decent side hustle, selling skateboard ramps that I made from scraps I found in the dumpsters of, oh, cool. of the, uh, <laughs> the local, local construction yards. What, like one um, interesting kind of event in my life, you know, Delaware was rural 
when I was born, but it, you know the part, the area I grew up in became rapidly suburban through my childhood, and you know one defining moment was watching the the forest behind my house get bulldozed for a, a Toll Brothers neighborhood, mm. um, and so you know I mm. was I was an informed environmentalist early early mm. in my life. Mm. Mm. How old were you when that happened? I don't know exactly. I, um, maybe eight years old. I don't know exactly, but wow, young. Yeah, that sounds formative. Um, your mom was an art history professor and your dad was a chemical engineer at DuPont. Tell me about your mom and dad and what did you learn from them that has stuck with you? Yeah, so my parents were individuals. My my dad had a rhythm. He, you know, he kind of did the same thing every day. It was the same same thing for breakfast, the same shirt and tie, uh, you know, same thing for lunch. He left at the same time, came home at the same time. I always knew when to be by the phone and when his call was going to come after I got off the bus after school. But, um, you know, for him, he was an engineer. Everything was planned and optimized. Um, he was the ultimate DIYer. You know, we, like I said before, we built most of our house. We, you know, if we wanted a Christmas tree for Christmas, we would hoist the ladder up one of the trees in our yard and cut a piece off the top. You know, we like if, <laughs> if I wanted a computer game when I was a kid, I had to program it myself. Like it was definitely a, like a DIY Love mantra. It. And um, some of it was frugality, but I think some of it was just principle. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I learned I learned a lot from my dad. He taught me how to swing a, hit, a hammer. He taught me how to use a spreadsheet before Excel existed, you know, was one to teach practical things. My mom, you know, she was an art history professor. She, she was more, um, a student of the arts and of history. And, you know, she taught me how to write. She taught me how to think. Um, she taught me how to be creative to, you know, appreciate Mm. Rothko and Brancusi and, um, things that, you know, I appreciate now. I didn't, I didn't appreciate when I was a kid as much, but, um, but, you know, she also taught me to be competitive. Like, she will still wipe the floor with me in a game of Scrabble if I give her the chance. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, but, you know, both my parents were, were super intellectual. Um, they both read voraciously. And, I, you know, I, I grew up with the notion that people just become super smart when they get older. But, I've you know, I've realized that that's not always the case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they taught me, they taught me how to think independently. I think that's something they, they really stressed and how to figure out for myself what, what was right, but also what was right for me, like what I wanted to do with my life and, Mm. and to kind of give that, give that, um, importance. I think, you know, sometimes, Mm. sometimes, uh, that went a little far, like the independent thinking. I um, there's a famous picture in our family of of my grandparents' 40th anniversary, where um, it's the only picture of everybody in all three generations in my parents' family. Mm-hmm. And I decided I wasn't going to wear a shirt. And so, you know, I think my mom had to pick her <laughs> battles. And so this is one where this was not the battle she was going to fight. There was other more important things to fight, but. <laughs> I appreciate the sense of rebellion. 
Um, so fast forward to 1993, you go to Cornell University and study mechanical engineering. Why Cornell? Why mechanical engineering? And what was your experience like there? Yeah, it's it's a bit ironic. I always told myself I I wouldn't go to Cornell. Both my parents went there. My my sister was there at the time. But when it became time to pick, Cornell just felt right to me. It was it was clear to me I was I was going to major in engineering and probably mechanical engineering. And Cornell has a great engineering school, but um, it also has a lot of great programs in liberal arts. And so I. I felt like I wasn't sacrificing studying engineering um, by going there. The campus is beautiful, uh, especially if you visit after you get admitted in the late spring or summer. It's also pretty when it, you know, right after it snows, but there, there's some, there's some long months in between. But, um, you know, the thing that clinched it for me was, was the race car team. Uh, You know, I was, I was into cars when I was a kid and there's a student team there where you build and compete racing a, a car against a hundred other schools. Um, and that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And the kind of the thought that over the next four years, I would be able to build and drive that race car was, was super exciting to me. But yeah, I mean, you know, academics at Cornell was super theoretical. The, you know, the race car team helped help balance that out for me. And then, you know, socially like Cornell's a, it's a huge school, but people find their pockets and I definitely found mine and it was um you know I had a lot of good friends and we had a lot of fun there's lots of beautiful things to do in the outdoors there and um and you know long winters where you have to find each other indoors and and kind of find warmth um amongst each other Hmm. I'm going to attempt to summarize the next 25 years of your career, so we'll see how this goes. After graduating from Cornell, you got a master's in product design engineering at Stanford, and during your time at Stanford and beyond, you worked at the design firm IDEO and spent six months working with entrepreneurs in Kenya. You then went back to Stanford for an MBA, during which you worked at Nth Power, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm, and that's when you first fell in love with solar. And then over the next decade, and despite some raised eyebrows from your MBA friends, you worked at three solar companies, Mia Soleil, SolarCity, and then Mosaic. And then in 2014, you joined Google's energy team and later Google X leading climate tech research. And then for the past five years, you've been advising and investing in startups, including those in the ocean space, while also spending time with your family. When you reflect on your 25-year career to date across design, solar, and venture leading up to founding Ebb, is there a consistent theme that has prompted you to make the career moves that you've made? And then what have you learned from your career thus far? Yeah, I mean, so there there are times in my career where I could definitely have gone down a very different path. You know, as I as I mentioned earlier, I loved mm-hmm. cars, and I had I had an offer to work at GM. And when I graduated for Cornell, that that was probably the rational thing for me to do. It was um, <laughs> it was a yeah. good paying job at a good company. Um, mm-hmm. I also just parenthetically also had an offer to design diaper production lines at Procter and Gamble, but that, that was one that was an easy, easy thing to, to turn away from. But, um, you know, I, instead I decided to study product design. I think, I think there's some elements of my upbringing, you know, my art history mom and my engineer dad, product design just resonated for me, the creativity and the, the free thinking. Mm. Um, and so, you know, from that I discovered IDEO, which led to, to other things, but the, I think th- there are, 
are always easier things to do, but often um, your passion kind of leads you in a different direction. And mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. you know, following that passion has, has certainly served me well. It certainly kept me happy in my career. It certainly made it easy mm-hmm. to get up and go to work every morning. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think I think one of one of the epiphanies for me that has kind of codified the theme across those 25 years was was my experience at Nth Power. Nth Power was one of the the OG, you know, VC firms in the in the climate space. Um, And it was that summer. So there was a company called Evergreen Solar that had gone public a couple of years earlier. But that summer we were working on a transaction with them and it was this realization that there's a company that's doing cool technology that you know the technology actually has a purpose that's something i believe in that's actually making a difference Um, and the people who were building that technology and building the company behind it made some money along the way like it combined all these things that um were Mm. super enabling for me and exciting to me and so you'll see Mm -hmm. pieces of that in, in everything that I've done since. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think people, uh, around our age or of our generation grew up thinking you could either work in the nonprofit sector and do good and be poor, or you could work in business and make money and be evil. And that's at least that's, that was the framework that I was raised with. And it was only, you know, getting into my twenties or, you know, late twenties when, these opportunities started to coincide that you could make money and do good. And that framework for me at least was new. And it sounds like it was for you at that time. as well. Yeah. And it's, it's maybe even a step further, which is that, um, making money could be a means for doing good. Uh, it could be the way of, of accelerating good things. Uh, and this, you know, this was a realization in the work I did in Kenya. I worked for, at the time it was called Apertech. It's now called Kickstart. But it's, you know, essentially the mission is to create inventions that people can make money using. Um, and so, you know, the, the profit motive can sometimes be used mm-hmm. for good. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned spending most of your career in solar, but then these past five years leading up to Ebb, you've done more in the ocean space and marine space. What drew you to the ocean? Well, yeah, ironically, I get seasick now, so, um, but I didn't, I didn't when I was a kid. When I was a kid, like, some of my earliest memories are spending time on the ocean, fishing with my grandfather in Florida, mm-hmm. or seining in Lewis Bay in Delaware, and, you know, finding all the, the creatures that are hidden. Um, you know, we, we went to Cape Cod and rented a, a ramshackle cottage, you know, in, in the summers and, <laughs> and the time, you know, seeing the differences between the bay side and the ocean side and just all the, like the countless hours just exploring there. And so like, I always had this kind of experience, but, you know, appreciation and, and kind of fond memories of time in the ocean. So I think, I think there's something there that mm-hmm. drew me, but um, more than anything in the recent past it it is focused on finding solutions to climate change and i think the ocean is one of these overlooked areas of opportunity that's somewhat underinvested and um you know there's there's an opportunity because of its vastness and because of the outsized solutions that it already delivers naturally uh 
you know, there's an opportunity for it to be a big part of the solution. And, mm. and if we're responsible about it, we can cultivate those pathways into meaningful impact. Perfect transition into the person who would become your co-founder and CTO, Matt Eisenman, who had spent his last decade researching the ocean carbonate system and the role that it plays in helping the ocean absorb atmospheric carbon dioxide. I know you and Matt first met when you were at Google X, now known as X, where Matt was a science advisor and you were commercializing climate technologies. How did you reconnect with Matt? So Matt and I have um, generally been in touch, but... uh, you know, the beginning of this conversation that became Ebb, he he was then at Stony Brook University and he had just won a grant from the Grantham Foundation to to essentially explore the pathways to commercialization of this broader principle that we're employing at Ebb called ocean alkalinity enhancement. And um, he and I, when we were at X, we worked on uh, a, a project that had a related principle. So he and uh, a number of other people were leading this project that um, essentially worked on the principle of of pulling CO2 out of ocean water. And then the goal of that project was to try and turn that CO2 into liquid fuels that could be essentially carbon neutral fuels. But in, you know, in X fashion, that project was, was shut down because the, the unit economics just didn't work the the energy intensity of it was too high and the capital cost of the equipment to separate um, co2 out of the ocean water was just was just too too much and so um to you know to x's favorite they they published a bunch of papers on what we learned and why you know why they um determined that it wouldn't work but you know, so my, my initial reaction when Matt came to me was like, "Hey, I thought we I thought we decided that didn't work. So why why are we talking about this?" Mm-hmm. But um, but what had changed? Is there's, there's two important things that have changed. So one is that Stripe was, you know, and and other companies like Stripe were now in the market buying the service of removing and verifying carbon from the atmosphere, um, and so there was suddenly a price to be paid for the carbon. We we no longer had to go through the convolutions of converting carbon dioxide to fuel and then try and find a way to sell fuel. Instead, we were getting paid for the, um, you know, for that service. And it turns out uh, the the part that's super efficient and super scalable and cost effective is, is the part of converting the CO2 to a, a safe form that can be stored in the ocean. So as long as we don't want to pull the CO2 out, you, we can do it very, very cheaply and in a very scalable way. And so that's the insight that is, you know, now that we have a market for doing that and we don't have to try and sell it as something else, uh, we can we can now run after this, this um, you know, very effective and scalable pathway. But, um, yeah, so Matt, Matt reached out. He won this grant, and he needed help building building the thing and matt is is um he's a he's a thinker but he's he doesn't he didn't have the the ability to to build that thing so he's looking for help finding a team who could help him build it 
perfect timing, enter the two other eventual EBB co-founders, Dave Hegeman and Todd Pellman, who were running a client services business at the time, building prototypes for companies, but they wanted to do something more squarely in climate. And they happened to have just purchased this totally empty, stripped down warehouse in San Carlos, California. Um, how did the four of you come together? And then what was it like for you to ultimately make the leap to join and start EBB? So Todd and Dave and I had been brainstorming for quite some time, looking looking for the right engineering challenge that would be uh, a part of a solution to, to climate change. So we had already been dreaming of something big um, and looking for the right right problem to, to focus on. But um, but Todd and I worked together at IDEO 20-plus years ago, so we knew each other well. Uh, Dave and Todd were roommates or at least friends in college i don't know if they were actually ever roommates but friends in college and um and had started other companies together and and were already a well-oiled machine but um but yes like we we had the problem and we had some money to fund uh the first prototype of that problem and um we had a space to do it and and as you as you said the space did um did not have any um, any comforts to it we you know it wasn't until just recently that we had heat or bathrooms in this space but I think it <laughs> modern amenities you know, we're um, we're focused on the problem not not the uh, not we don't need to pamper ourselves but congratulations yes, on your bathrooms well it's <laughs> yes and the team is appreciative of them but you know it's like it's a badge of honor for the team that was um that was here without them and and we we made friends with our neighbors uh, down the street but um but yeah i mean we there was um it was a bit of a scene i mean we you could see the looks in people's faces when we were mixing vats of chemicals with you know in bunny suits with goggles on uh, people probably wondered what we were we were doing here and uh, in in many ways, it it took us to hire you know some of the first few people on the team until we until we kind of really really got rolling. But Todd, Dave, and I um, and others they you know they had worked with in the past. We were able to to build something that worked that was a proof of concept in service of of this grant. And and once we did, it was obvious that there was an opportunity for for something more here, and that that's what inspired founding the company. Hmm. So you, Matt, received this $2 million grant through Stony Brook University for the research. Then you raised a $3 million seed round. Where did the seed capital come from and what did it enable you to do in terms of that early prototyping? And what did that prototyping look like? So uh, Grantham Foundation also has a, a venture fund associated with it called Neglected Climate Opportunities Fund. And so they they seeded the company and um, and so you know, with that, we uh, started to develop the next version of uh, the next iteration of the of the prototype, um, and started to work on what became uh, the first system that we've installed, uh, you know, out, outside of San Carlos. But um, physically, the first one, it was pretty ugly. I mean, it's there were you know, two by fours and. Um, you know, wires everywhere. It was not photogenic by any sense, but it worked. And it was, it was something (laughs) that we could, we could run through many iterations of the core technology and, you know, start to collect meaningful data and start to really understand, um, and, and make decisions on some of the fundamental 
architectural questions about how how this thing could meet our future cost targets and how we could scale something like this and how we mm-hmm. can deliver on the needs of of our customers. Mm. I know you've been passionate about product basically your entire career, if not your entire life. Uh, what did you learn from that early prototyping period? I I think um, well one thing I learned is that um, personally. I um I'm no longer qualified to be the person who prototypes. I you know every single thing, literally every single thing I <laughs> I attached to that original prototype was was not there the next morning when I came back. So um so the hints hit Dave and Todd are just yeah, quietly at night removing whatever exactly. you did. So those those hints were were you know eventually um eventually picked up on and so I you know I kind of reoriented toward other things like fundraising, but um, I mean, I think th- there are countless, you know, small and big learnings that come through that process of iteration. And I think it's, it's kind of ingrained in, in the learning mindset of an organization like ours. You know, we, we are breaking ground with everything we're doing. It's, um, you know, there's, and there, and so there's IP falling on the floor everywhere around, like as we, you know, as we build these systems, it's, there's kind of realizations and and opportunities for design space that pop up Um, and so you know what like one principle that's a truism in prototyping that we've we've kind of relearned time and again is that uh, it's it's important to focus a prototype on answering a question and building the scale Mm -hmm. of the prototype that will best answer that question and so you know we've we've built these large integrated prototypes but we've also reminded ourselves that we also need to iterate faster on smaller scale more focused mm-hmm. prototypes and so you know things from coupons of some of the membranes we use to you know sensors and um you know even things as as mundane as pumps and and kind of control systems for pumps like these are all things that we can prototype separately and and get learning and and data and feedback on coming up ebb carbon starts honing their technology and starts actually removing carbon but first a word from our sponsors what it takes is brought to you by microsoft in january of 2020 microsoft announced a one billion dollar climate innovation fund alongside an ambitious set of sustainability goals Since then, the fund has been investing in innovative technologies that have the potential for meaningful, measurable climate impact by 2030. To date, Microsoft has allocated more than $700 million into a global portfolio of over 50 investments, including sustainable solutions in energy, industrial, and natural systems. They strive to be an impact-driven investor, buyer, and go-to market partner to advance solutions alongside the commercialization curve and make them affordable and scalable for others. Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund invested in Line Vision, who uses AI and computational fluid dynamics to integrate local weather data with near real-time ground sensor measurements to provide a reliable hourly rating of the current carrying capacity of transmission lines. This dynamic line rating allows transmission owners to unlock additional carrying capacity from their existing infrastructure compared to static line ratings and bring additional renewable energy onto the grid. 
What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to scale your work in the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a lower carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Avnos, pioneering a new form of direct air capture, turning a traditionally water-intensive process into a water-generating one. Earth Optics, building better ways of analyzing how regenerative farming practices build carbon and other nutrients in our soils. And companies like Mainspring Energy, who we featured on the show, who's developing critical hardware to seamlessly switch between clean fuels like biogas, hydrogen, and ammonia, providing energy generation and storage for EV charging, data centers, and renewable power. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solution. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. Yeah, it's it's interesting hearing about some of the components. Um, at a high level, I know Ebb uses electrochemistry to remove acidity from seawater as it flows through the Ebb system. And then free of acid, that seawater is returned to the ocean where it can then absorb more CO2 from the air and then store it as bicarbonate, this safe and naturally abundant form of carbon storage in the ocean. Um, so that's my high level understanding. But go a level deeper. How would you describe Ebb's technology in detail? And if I'm seeing it happen, if I'm at San Carlos or or at your first um, uh, lab-based site, uh, tell me what am I seeing? What's happening? So visually, it's um, it's a network of pumps and pipes and tanks and sensors, and all of all of that is in service of feeding the core element of this, which is the the membrane stack, um, and so the stack is it's a box that has uh, you know, a hundred thin film membranes in it that we're feeding with different solutions of, of water that have, have salts in them. Um, and those filters are, those membranes essentially, you know, are selective filters for different ions, different salts in, in the ocean water. Um, but, you know, physically what's happening is we, we pump seawater across that electrochemical stack. And as we do, we rearrange the salts in that ocean water, and, and in doing so, we create uh, acid on one side and base on the other, and we, we pump the acid out of the ocean water and returning everything else. We're essentially adding net alkalinity to the ocean, and as we do, that alkalinity um, essentially pushes the carbonate system in the ocean from CO2 toward bicarbonate and bicarbonate is just another another molecule it's an it's an dissolved ion in ocean water where um whereby you know once once it's dissolved once it's formed as bicarbonate it's you know it's part of this natural system where it it persists as bicarbonate in the ocean for 10,000 plus years but each of these systems so you know 250 ton per year of CO2 removal capacity system fits in the size of a shipping container. So it's something that we, we can build it on site and then, um, you know, build it in our factory and then, and then ship it and install it. Mm -hmm. Two questions. What do you do with the acid 
and how are you powering the system? So uh, the acid completes the natural cycle. So in, in the natural cycle, when there's excess CO2 in the air, it creates acidity in the form of carbonic acid in rain, and that essentially reacts with minerals to then neutralize the acid but form alkalinity that washes in the ocean, and, and that does what everything I just said previously. Um, and so we're essentially doing the opposite. We're, we're adding alkalinity by pulling acid out of the ocean, um, and then we use the acid and react it with minerals. And some of those reactions... All of those reactions will neutralize the acid. Some of them can lead to additional CO2 being pulled out of the air and, and sequestered in the form of, of carbonate minerals. Um, so that's the acid side. And then the electricity we source from as low-cost, low-carbon, high-capacity factor sources as we can find. And the good news for us is people have been hard at work growing the solar industry over the last 20 years. And so... <laughs> low-cost, low-carbon, high-capacity factor energy is becoming more and more available. But what, you know, what is also true is that the lower-carbon, lower-cost forms of energy tend to be more intermittent. And so one of, one of the things that we've done is designed our system so that it can accommodate intermittency so that we can gain access mm -hmm. to those lowest-cost, lowest-carbon intensity sources of energy. Mm -hmm. Have you done that? Well, it's um, it's essentially just through control systems. So we can we can ramp the demand of our system up and down very quickly and mm. maintain efficiency and um, and then you know we, we essentially can afford a, a capex, a cost of the equipment, such that you know the benefit of cheaper energy um, you know outweighs whatever idle cost of capex you know we might otherwise consider. Mm -hmm. It sounds like geoengineering, which is controversial. While you are in this prototyping phase, were you thinking that EBS Tech fits into the category of geoengineering? And then beyond removing CO2 from the atmosphere, what impact does EBS process have on ocean and marine species? Yeah, I mean, geoengineering is a word that lacks meaning, I think. It's, you know, it's one of these words that <laughs> is often applied to things that it probably should not be applied to, but in our case, what, you know, what we're doing is accelerating a natural process. We've collectively, unnaturally emitted too much CO2 in the air, and um, if I were to label something geoengineering, that sounds like geoengineering, <laughs> the kind of human-caused um, warming of, yeah. of our atmosphere and our, you know, acidification of our oceans, like that feels very much like geoengineering and so what you know what we're trying to do is counteract both of those effects we're trying to pull co2 out of the air we're trying to um, enable a, a method of locally reducing ocean acid um, you know in a way that could counteract those human caused effects but we're trying to restore balance in the ocean we're trying to um, you know do it in a way that fits with these natural processes. Uh, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's fair to say, like, we unfortunately are in a position where we have to take some interventions here. Otherwise, the, the alternatives mm -hmm. are not particularly savory. And so, you know, we need mm -hmm. to, we need to collectively kind of correct for the problems we've caused. 
Uh, you mentioned Stripe earlier, and in December of 2021, less than 10 months after you founded Ebb, you landed them as your first customer, and they agreed to pay you nearly $2,000 per ton of carbon removed for a total of a $1.5 million contract. Carbon removal is still voluntary, but more than half of Fortune 500 companies, including Stripe, have made carbon removal commitments. How did you land Stripe as your first customer? So, I mean, Stripe's work in this space cannot be understated. They have stimulated, they and other other companies like them, but Stripe in particular, have essentially created this market for high-quality carbon removal that has enabled companies like Ebb to to raise money. Um, and so, you know, they are very intentional and very aware about what has not worked in the past in this market and what is needed in order to contribute to a, you know, a, a viable pathway to solving this problem. Um, and so, you know, their process is very transparent, very open. They are, um, are quick to hire or engage with scientists who, who know how to differentiate between uh, these these technologies, but also in the cases where nobody knows, they know what questions to ask so we can collectively figure it out together. Uh, but yeah, so the process was essentially through an application. The, the application was public and, and through that process, they make, um, you know, make a, a number of, of these, these types of commitments in service of trying to, trying to create uh, a viable pathway for growth of, of carbon removal and, and companies that can can scale. Um, and so, you know, since Stripe has joined with maybe a dozen other companies to form something called Frontier, which is, uh, you know, also making large purchases and, and starting to make longer-term offtake commitments in, in this space. And, and so that's having a hugely catalytic effect on this market and on companies like like Ebb Carbon. Hmm. I know sophisticated customers like Stripe care about three CDR qualities that you mentioned earlier, permanence, additionality, and verification. How does Ebb prove all three? Well, I mean, I think we're fortunate to have customers like Stripe who bring scientists to the table and who are willing to engage in the data that that will demonstrate this. And so what we're not doing is looking for a gold stamp. Um, what we're instead looking for is kind of an open and ongoing conversation to continue to tune it to be what's right. And um, and so that's what we have with, with Stripe on all of these fronts. And we're uh, continually presenting... Um, you know, points of view and then getting feedback and improving on that. And, um, and so, you know, the, the good news is that this is a natural principle that has been honed over, you know, 4 billion years. And so there's a geologic record that can, <laughs> um, demonstrate some of, some of the answers to the questions you're asking. There's, you know, very clear evidence for why once CO2 is converted to bicarbonate, it's, it's stable in the ocean, for at least ten thousand years, probably probably closer to one hundred thousand years, um, and the the market's demanding a thousand years. So we're we're well beyond what the market's asking for. We're well beyond um, any any kind of economic requirement we might have in terms of discounting over over a long period. 
So, you know, permanence is, is very clear. Additionality is very clear. You know, any measure of additionality, nobody is going to spend all of this money building all of this equipment for any reason but to pull CO2 out of the air. Uh, and so 100% additional. And the verification is is an ongoing process, but it's it's a it's work that is evolving and and certainly improving in in the two years that we've been on this. Um, there are many partners who are working with us who are experts in these forms of ocean um, measurements and ocean modeling, and all of that contributes to being able to. Deliver on a, a high degree of certainty of of how much CO two we're removing and storing. Got it. So, you've got your first customer. You're able to provide them the carbon dioxide removal or CDR qualities that they're looking for. Now you need to deliver in the real world, uh, and you do. In August of 2023, you launched your first carbon removal system capable of removing 100 tons of carbon per year in Squim, Washington, in the U.S. Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Lab. For any kind of CDR to have the kind of impact that we all hope for, it has to operate at scale. So where will your next sites be? When will they come online? And what kind of removal capacity do you envision for Ebb? So our first site is at Pacific Northwest National Labs in Squim, which is, you know, it's right on the Puget Sound. It's emblematic of the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. Um and you know our our system it's it's in an indoor lab but it it interfaces with uh seawater that's drawn from the the sound into into their labs and and more than anything this is this is an opportunity for us to co-locate with some of the world's most respected researchers in this space you know these are experts who are able to help us understand uh, and and gather data on on how these systems are performing and how they're interacting with um, with with ocean water, that work will lead to published data, which will further validate the the safety and efficacy of, of what we're doing. But um, you know, future future sites will will build on that foundation, and for you know, we're we're developing a number of uh, we have a pipeline of a number of of new sites. There's more than enough capacity in existing industrial infrastructure to deliver on billions of tons per year of of carbon removal. So, just desalination alone is is roughly a gigaton per year opportunity. Um, power plants have a lot of power capacity, obviously, but also many power plants move a lot of ocean water, and so you know those are are sites that will will add up. But you know there's there's a definite cost advantage to us working with existing industrial sites there you know they have a lot of the infrastructure we need and so we can uh, you know both save money on our capex but also in many cases provide benefits to them that lead to um, you know to advantages for their for their core business and so you know we're there are opportunities for this all over the world uh, but we will we will start smaller and closer to home um, as we as we grow Ben, you started Ebb in 2021, and in April of 2023, you announced that you raised a 20 million Series A. Who are some of your investors, and what have you learned about fundraising, both for Ebb but also across your career? Yeah, investors include Grantham that I mentioned earlier, but also uh, you know we've been very intentional about building 
a, a coalition of investors who have deep experience in in the space of of hard technology, climate technology. And so, you know, Prelude is on on our cap table, Congruent, Evoke, Insight, um, you know, people like Jane Woodward, uh, Propeller. But, you know, I think the thing, like you're asking what, what, what have I learned about fundraising? I think, you know, one interesting thing is that many of these fundraising conversations started 25 years ago. Um, you know, these are... <laughs> These are relationships that I've had for a very, very long time, right. and 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 so I don't take that lightly. These, you know, I, I understand that this is as much a bet on this opportunity and this technology and the team we're building, but as you know, as well as a, a vote of confidence in in my relationships with with some of the principals at at these firms, and so. Yeah, I mean, what have I learned? Like fundraising is is definitely as much a relationship game as it is a, a pitch and a and a and a business model. It's um, you know, it, it takes a while to build that trust for sure. Hmm. I love knowing that you were Tim Woodward, one of the partners at Prelude, his intern at Nth Power. I think twenty years ago. I was yeah, I was an intern at Nth Power, and Tim was a partner there, and um, we yeah we did did a bunch of work together, and we've been in touch ever since. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a long it's a long path for sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so this capital has enabled you to hire about 40 amazing team members. And I know you're really proud of having built a team of compassionate and curious and collaborative people. What have you learned about hiring since you started up, but also across your career? I, w- one thing that's clear at a high growth company like Ebb is that priorities and direction change often and can, and can change quickly. And And so one thing I've learned is that Hiring for expedi- sorry for experience or competency is often not the right criteria. It's it's maybe more important to focus on character and conviction and processing speed. But some of the more fundamental uh, enablers of success, like that that ability to adapt and to be flexible and do do things as they change and grow with the company as the company changes is a, in a very, very important attribute in hiring. And so, yeah, I think more than hiring for skills, hiring for aptitude is, is important. Mm, well said. If you could go back in time two years ago to when you were founding Ebb, what advice would you give yourself? Well, get some rest, um, first, but <laughs> I, I mean, I think, um, I think, if if you're long in your career, if you have 25 years of experience and you've tasted some success along the way, I think I think it's easy to be a bit too precious about your expectations of, of future success, which mm. can can steer you away from taking the risks that maybe led to your success in the first place. And so, mm. I think you know maybe one piece of advice would be like what are you waiting for? Like, just, this is like exactly what you've been looking for and just go do it. Like, Mm. just, just Mm. get started. Mm. Do you think you waited too long to start? Not for Ebb, but I think, I think there was certainly a period in between where there were other opportunities like Ebb that, um, that maybe I should have jumped into more fully that I, I kind of spent Mm. time from the sidelines, uh, 
looking at, kind of waiting for something better when I probably could have made mm-hmm. it better. And and it was a different time for me. Mm-hmm. Like I was, <laughs> I was able to, you know, to have breakfast with my dad every morning in, in the year he passed mm-hmm. away. And so like there were other priorities mm-hmm. that I had and other considerations. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't, I don't have any second guessing of, of those decisions, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, certainly there are other mm-hmm. things that I probably could have jumped into. Mm-hmm. Has your leadership style changed since you got back in the the startup seat and founded up two years ago? I mean, I think I think leadership has to change as the organization changes, and so you know what what starts as a process of trying to to you know solve a problem maybe evolves into figuring out which problems to solve, which is now evolving into let's find ways to get rid of the problems. Let's kind of think bigger and, and longer term. And so, um, you know, that's certainly the nature of the work and and the results of the leadership. I, I'm not, um, I'm not one that ascribes to, like, I think, I think we often in Silicon Valley lionize leadership and especially in retrospect, we look back and point to the attributes and highlight the attributes of of leaders and point make causal connections between that leadership style and success. But not everybody is is Steve Jobs, and not every successful company is led by somebody as remarkable as as Steve Jobs. But also, like every Steve Jobs has a Steve Wozniak, every every Elon Musk mm-hmm. has a J.B. Straubel. <laughs> There's different people with different styles of leadership, and um, there are different pathways to success and I'm, I'm certainly willing to embrace those. And I certainly understand that I'm no Steve jobs. I, I have a different (laughs) way of approaching the world and, and, you know, I need to accentuate that in order to, to be Mm -hmm. successful. Emulating Steve jobs would not be successful for me. (laughs) I I agree. (laughs) I'm I'm happy you don't. Um, This next question often gets asked to women and people of color and underrepresented people of color. It's like, what's it like being a woman in your sector? What's it like being black in your sector? And white men are never asked, what's it like being a white man in your sector? Because being a white man is sort of seen as the norm or the default. So uh, sometimes when I ask white men this question, they're just like, what? (laughs) Um, But I want to ask you, because I know it's something that you are really thoughtful about, you know, what is it like being a founder who is white and male leading a climate tech company in an industry that is also majority white and male? Yeah, I, lo- I love the premise of the question, and I am glad you're asking it. I, you know, I think, yeah, clearly there are a lot of things that come easily to me with, without justification. Like, if if privilege were an ice cream store, I've sampled all 31 flavors. Like, I have definitely <laughs> had, you know, had the benefit of the doubt where maybe I shouldn't have always. And And I guess, you know, the question to me is, if you have those advantages, what what are you going to do with them? Like, what what can you do that will contribute most to the problem at hand? Um, but it's you know it's also very clear that the team that will lead to the best outcomes is not a group of people. Despite all of the unwarranted advantages, it's not a group of people like me. It's it's a group of people who bring different perspectives and can bring other orthogonal and more creative and different ways of thinking that will ultimately lead to, to the best, best solutions. Hmm. Agreed. 
I know you are a partner to your wife, Emily, and you're a dad to your awesome 13-year-old twins. And you're also obviously a founder and CEO of Ebb. What's it like being all three? What has it been like being all three at the same time? I, so I've been able to compartmentalize a bit, I think. But, you know, like, so Emily and I met on her 18th birthday. We met in the first, oh my gosh. first dorm meeting freshman year in college, and we were really close friends for a long time before we dated. And in many, in many respects, she knows me better than I know myself. Like she's mm. able to, mm. to reflect on me in a way that I'm often not able to reflect on myself. But we, we actually don't talk about work. And it's not that it's not interesting to her or it's not that we've decided not to. It's just there's always something else more important to talk about or more interesting to talk about when we're home. And so, you know, I've, I've certainly learned that this is a long game. You know, the startups are obviously can be all encompassing, but if you let them be, then you have a a short shelf life. And, and, and so I've been in enough startups to know that I personally need balance to, to make it to the finish line and that, like, yeah, I mean, there's certainly things I miss, but but I make a point of prioritizing the time, you know, dinner time with family or making it to the kids' soccer games or helping with the projects in the garage that the kids want to work on or whatever it is. But, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, it also leads to efficiencies at work. Like, I don't, I don't trifle with, you know wasting time at work like I'm I'm sometimes a bit of a machine at work which is maybe annoying to some of my teammates but it's um (laughs) but yeah like I think there's there's a need to have space outside of work and I I try and create those boundaries and you know my kids are generally excited genuinely excited about what we're doing they you know they're teenagers but they like their faces light up when they come visit and see see the stuff Mm -hmm. we're building and when they understand more Mm -hmm. about it. Um, And so, you know, that makes me feel good. Like it makes me feel good that my kids are proud of me and, you know, Mm -hmm. rooting for me. And it's in all of this, like the, the, the work we do, like there's ups and downs for sure. And things are dynamic at work. And so it's, it's very grounding for me to have the stability. I, I feel very fortunate to kind of have the, the family I have that supports me in the way that they do. And it's, you know, so it, it's kind of very stabilizing when everything else is not. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Zooming out, uh, what will the future of marine carbon removal look like a decade from now? Well, I mean, so as I said in the beginning, we need, we need 10 gigatons and marine carbon could do all 10 gigatons, but the likely reality is that we won't. And so we need a whole portfolio of viable options that can scale. We need, you know, we need to encourage policies that are tech neutral, that enable the the best things to win. Um, but, you know, as, as we do, like as we start to gain trust and as we start to have more data um, you know these these solutions will scale and they will they will come down in in price and they will open up the market to more buyers you know the, the list of buyers will expand beyond just the you know the 
forward-looking tech companies into a broader set of public companies and eventually hopefully governments to you know to really put a dent in this in this problem and if ebb succeeds what will the company look like in a decade and you mentioned price what will the price of ebb's carbon removal be in a decade I mean, there's a path to well below $50 a ton of removal, and that's, you know, that's in the zone. Like, there's, um, there, you know, there's economists who point to the social cost of carbon that, you know, is above $200 a ton. And so we can definitely afford to, to pay more than what it will cost for Ebb to do it in, in that time frame. But, um, you know, moving 10 billion tons of mass is it's a big it's a big endeavor we will likely partner with the companies that move the mass so we will likely be co-developing and and enabling project development and financing and technology but um, it's not necessary that we are the ones who are actually building and operating the infrastructure in the long term and so i, I can imagine we will migrate in that like today we're very vertically integrated but i imagine in the future we won't need to be but you know solving this problem will generate a lot of wealth for a lot of people involved and so if we're successful we will probably be one of the biggest companies in the world (laughs) i love it perfect way to transition into what is always my favorite part there's the high voltage round you are familiar quick questions quick answers quick meaning about five second answers ben if you were an animal what animal would you be and why um, I'm going to have to say platypus um, for this is this is a shout out to my daughter Zoe who is just infatuated with platypus. So, <laughs> or I think it's platypuses. She told me it's platypuses, but good to know. I I was not aware. I think there might be one other platypus on what it takes, but I don't remember who. So I'm going to have to look into that. Okay. You know. Okay. What inspires you? Curiosity of children the the kind of free thinking that comes um from children is is just always eye-opening i agree if you had to start a new career tomorrow what would it be i would be an artist Mm, what kind of art probably something three-dimensional maybe kinetic sculpture so cool other than yourself to whom do you attribute your success well, clearly Emily and my parents, um, maybe in some ways, although I hate to admit it, my sisters, but, um, <laughs> I hope they hear that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, countless mentors along the way, you know, my scout leaders mm-hmm. as a kid and soccer coaches to people who looked out for me at different companies that I've worked for. Mm. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. So I think one example for me is my experience at Google X, uh, you know, now called X, where I had at my fingertips amazing resources, talent, money, you know, positional, you know, awareness. But uh, I was not able to deliver on as much impact as I thought was possible in in that situation. I think... um, I, I was just not able to navigate the the system there in a way that led to what what was possible. Hmm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? 
things that matter, like good things take time to gestate. Like I think there's an impatience that I had early in my career. And I think I now see the long arc. I see the opportunities to build meaningful impact over time. And sometimes it takes time and you have to be patient and willing to, to trudge through what's hard in between to get there. Hmm. What's the best investment you've ever made? I mean, the best financial investment I've ever made was, you know, a couple shares of Netflix, you know, early on. But I mean, the best investment I made is probably a check I wrote to um, the founders of Mosaic early on. And to their credit, soon after I made the investment, it was clear to them and to me that their current model was not not going to scale. Um, and so they they let me you know, spend time with them and brainstorm. And, you know, we ultimately came up with what um, what became their residential loan product, which has done quite well. It's one of the one of the biggest sources of residential clean technology financing that's in the market. We'll see on the financial return. I mean, it's doing well, but I think ultimately, like that led to relationships and um, kind of a rejuvenation of my spirit. Like I was, this was, you know, this was kind of soon after I left Solar City after the IPO and I was tired and looking for for something else and this was this was the thing that kind of got me excited and more than anything else it was my chance to meet you so (laughs) (laughs) what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe I mean I think to some degree I used to think that I deserved all of the success I had achieved and I think I've grown to realize that a lot of it has been granted to me in, in different ways. Mm. When are you your best self? My, my best when I'm working with people who have a similar zeal for a similar problem, but also when I'm able to build something, you know, when I'm, when I'm able to kind of, turn ideas into something tangible and and that kind of that moment of of making the first of something is is really when I'm most inspired what is your worst trait I think sometimes I can be quite demanding and I think it's it comes from a place of high expectations like from a a, a desire to really see change and see like it, it it I often see the opportunity to really make an impact and so I have high expectations of myself and sometimes those expectations carry over to the people around me um, and so you know often it's fair like often it it helps stretch us collectively but sometimes it's not fair if you could change one thing about the world what would it be I mean, you look at the news today, I think if we could restore reason to our discourse, if we could find a way for us all to, you know, share a desire to solve problems and talk about things as people to one another and and kind of collectively work together to solve problems in some way, that would be nice. Mm. 
if there was just one person who was going to hear this episode of what it takes, who would you want it to be? Maybe my dad. I think, Mm. I think there are times where like the work we're doing, it would be so much easier if I could just call him up and ask a question, like we're doing chemistry and he, like he would, he would be able to give me quick answers to some of the hard questions we have. Mm. Mm. Um, So I think about that often, but yeah, I think, I think he'd be proud to, to hear what we're working on. Mm. I'm sure he would. If he was in front of you right now, what would you, what would you say? Um, I would, I would tell him that I love him, but, um, I think I would ask him a question. I don't think I would say anything. Mm. I would, I think I would, I would ask him what he thinks or Mm. what he would do Mm. differently. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they don't have the right people doing the right things. (laughs) If you really knew me, you would know. That I'm not as quiet as I seem. (laughs) Success is? Impact. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Integrity. Hmm. But not with a question mark. Integrity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm most proud of? I'm most proud of being a part of the success that has been the solar industry. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's inspiring about where we are in the CDR industry today. I, I, see, that, I see that opportunity again. Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? The right people working on the right problems. <laughs> Ben, it means so much to me that you said yes, uh, despite not wanting to be in the spotlight. And I am just such a huge fan of you, who you are, first and foremost, but also all the work you're doing in the world. It means a lot to me to just be in this world with you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much, Emily. Ben Tarbell is the founder and CEO of Ebb Carbon. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. Powerhouse is hiring an operations and communications associate to lead the innovation firm's ops and comms, including helping produce this very podcast. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who might like this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor, Chris McGovern, Isabel Lee, and Jessica Macklin helped produce this episode. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.